Now we read the passage together. 1 Corinthians and chapter 14. The first epistle to the Corinthians and chapter 14. Follow after charity and desire spiritual gifts, but rather that ye may prophesy. For he that speaketh in an unknown tongue speaketh not unto men, but unto God. For no man understandeth him, howbeit in the spirit he speaketh mysteries. But he that prophesieth speaketh unto men to edification and exhortation and comfort. He that speaketh in an unknown tongue edifieth himself, but he that prophesieth edifieth the church. I would that ye all spake with tongues, but rather that ye prophesied. For greater is he that prophesieth than he that speaketh with tongues, except the interpret that the church may receive edifying. Now, brethren, if I come unto you speaking with tongues, what shall I profit you, except I shall speak to you either by revelation, or by knowledge, or by prophesying, or by doctrine, and even things without life-giving sound, whether pipe or harp, except they give a distinction in the sounds, how shall it be known what is piped or harped? For if the trumpet give an uncertain sound, who shall prepare himself to battle? So likewise ye except ye utter by the tongue words easy to be understood. How shall it be known what is spoken? For ye shall speak into the air. There are, it may be, so many kinds of voices in the world, and none of them is without signification. Therefore, if I know not the meaning of the voice, I shall be unto him that speaketh a barbarian, and he that speaketh shall be a barbarian unto me. Even so ye, for as much as ye are zealous of spiritual gifts, Seek that ye may excel to the edifying of the church. Wherefore, let him that speaketh in an unknown tongue pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in an unknown tongue, my spirit prayeth, but my understanding is unfruitful. What is it then? I will pray with the spirit, and I will pray with the understanding also. I will sing with the spirit, and I will sing with the understanding also else. When thou shalt bless with the Spirit, how shall he that occupieth the room of the unlearned say, Amen, at thy giving of thanks, seeing he understandeth not what thou sayest? For thou verily givest thanks well, but the other is not edified. I thank my God, I speak with tongues more than ye all. Yet in the church I had rather speak five words with my understanding, that by my voice I may teach others also than ten thousand words in an unknown tongue. Brethren, be not children in understanding, howbeit in malice be ye children, but in understanding be men. In the law it is written, With men of other tongues and other lips will I speak unto this people, and yet for all that will they not hear me, saith the Lord. Wherefore tongues are for a sign, not to them that believe, but to them that believe not. But prophesying serveth not for them that believe not, but for them which believe. If therefore the whole church be come together into one place, and all speak with tongues, and there come in those that are unlearned or unbelievers, will they not say that ye are mad? But if all prophesy, and there come in one that believeth not, or one unlearned, he is convinced of all, he is judged of all, and thus are the secrets of his heart made manifest, and so falling down on his face, he will worship God, and report that God is in you of a truth. How is it then, brethren, when ye come together, every one of you hath a psalm, hath a doctrine, hath a tongue, hath a revelation, hath an interpretation. Let all things be done unto edifying. If any man speak in an unknown tongue, let it be by two, or at the most by three, and that by course, and let one interpret. But if there be no interpreter, let him keep silence in the church, and let him speak to himself and to God. Let the prophets speak two or three, and let the other judge. If anything be revealed to another that sitteth by, let the first hold his peace. For ye may all prophesy one by one, that all may learn, and all may be comforted. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all churches of the saints. Let your women keep silence in the churches, for it is not permitted unto them to speak. But they are commanded to be under obedience, as also saith the law. And if they will learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is a shame for women to speak in the church. 
What? Came the word of God out from you, or came it unto you only? If any man think himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things that I write unto you are the commandments of the Lord. And if any man be ignorant, let him be ignorant. Wherefore, brethren, covet to prophesy, and forbid not to speak with tongues. Let all things be done decently and in order. <clears throat> That's a lengthy reading, and we trust the Lord's blessing upon his word. <clears throat> now, as many will know, we, um, we've already been in this epistle in the Bible readings here in previous years, so it will be unnecessary for me to give any general outline of 1 Corinthians. That has already been done on two or three occasions. Uh, those who were present last year will know that the Bible readings concluded at the end of chapter 12, and today we commence at the beginning of chapter 14. That meant that chapter 13, because of constraints of time, it had to be omitted from detailed consideration. So the brethren have asked me that in my opening I would also include a few comments, very brief, sketchy, general comments on chapter 13 as well. In fact, that is necessary because the very first thing that we consider when we come to chapter 14 is to think about the larger context of this particular chapter. We discovered at the beginning of chapter 12 where the Apostle Paul says concerning spiritual gifts that we were entering into a section of the epistle, indeed it goes back as far as chapter 11, a section of the epistle where the Apostle was speaking about some of the disorders in the meetings of the assembly at Corinth. And he was making a number of adjustments. At the end of chapter 11, he said, The rest I will set in order. At the end of this chapter, he says, Let all things be done decently and in order. In the next chapter, every man in his own order. So that God is a God of order, and the church of God is also a place of order, spiritual order, not human organization, but spiritual order as we have it delineated in this passage. Now that trilogy of chapters 12, 13 and 14, they deal comprehensively with the subject of spiritual gifts. Each chapter makes its own contribution to the subject. When we were in chapter 12 last year, we were reminded by our brother Mr. Baker concerning the endowment of gifts. Different gifts given to different believers, sovereignly distributed by the Lord Himself. There's no room for complaining, no room for clerisy, no room for copying, no room for cloning. God is a God of variety. And in the distribution of gifts, in the endowment of gifts, just like different members in the body, there is diversity and at the same time a marvellous unity. So the endowment of various gifts is the subject of chapter 12. When we come to chapter 13, the subject there is the environment of gifts. Because if the gifts that have been endowed in chapter 12 are going to be exercised profitably, it will have to be done in the environment of love. That's why that chapter comes in. Very often we see 1 Corinthians 13 in a text on the wall or people take it out and print it on some kind of a little greeting card. Well, that may be all right in its own place. But everything in Scripture has a place. And when you see the great chapter of love in its own context, it appears more beautiful than ever before. You will not be too long in assembly life until you discover that love is absolutely essential. And that's why great prominence is given to it. At the beginning of chapter 13, he speaks about the absence of love. He said, I could have great speech, tongues of men and of angels. He said, I could do spectacular things. Could even have faith to move mountains. He said, I could make mighty sacrifices. But he said, no matter about the sacrifices and the great speech and the supernatural spectacular things, if I don't have love, 
He said, I am nothing. It counts for nothing. It achieves nothing. He said, it's just the cacophony of useless noise, sounding brass and tinkling cymbal, and the absence of love produces a poverty-stricken state of affairs. Then in the middle of the chapter, he speaks about the attributes of love. And we can't go through all the negative attributes, positive attributes. He said love doesn't promote its own interests. Love, he said, doesn't take offense. Love, he said, is not arrogant. Love is not self-seeking, self-serving. He says love doesn't hold grudges. You see, the love of this chapter, chapter 13, it's not the romantic, sentimental thing that we hear so much about in glossy magazines. It's the tough hard-wearing, resilient quality that reflects the love that took the Savior to Calvary. You'll not be too long in the assembly until you'll get rebuffs. You say, I'm not going back. Someone will make a comment, you say, I'll take no more part in the meeting. But you do, because love, commitment. You don't hold the grudge. You don't go in a huff. Love is essential And love is excellent in its outworking. The absence of love, the attributes of love. Then at the end of chapter 13, he takes the subject a stage further. He speaks about the abiding of love. He mentions three gifts. We have tongues, uh, knowledge, and prophecy. Over against the three gifts, he mentions three graces. Faith, hope, and love. He said those gifts are temporary. But he said, these graces are permanent. And he said, of these three permanent graces, the greatest of these is love. So love is essential. Verses 1 to 3. Love is excellent. Verses 4 to 7. Love is eternal. Verses 8 to the end of the chapter. And he's encouraging the Christians to be motivated and to serve in the environment of love. So, I hope that will be sufficient for chapter number 13. The endowment of gift in chapter 12. Chapter 13, the environment of gift. But now that we come to chapter 14, the subject in this chapter is the employment of gift. How exactly do I employ gift? When do I take part in the meeting? When do I start? When do I stop? How do I consider others? What exactly is the way to go about this whole business of the employment of these, particularly these speaking gifts? So that's the context of the chapter that we are considering this afternoon, the employment of public gifts in the assembly of the Lord's people. Now, the second subject that I think I need to mention, not only the context of this chapter, but the major concern that uh, the chapter addresses. If you were to read the verses, you would be very quickly impressed with a number of words that, that keep surfacing time and time again. The first word that would really impress you as you go down the chapter is speak, speaking, speaketh. And to speak, 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 speak about two dozen times in this chapter. So that one of the subjects in the chapter is the subject of speaking. We're thinking about public participation in assembly meetings. Speaking. Nine times in the chapter he'll use the word church. So that, in fact, more times than in the other chapter, in the New Testament, the word assembly or the word church is found in this. So it's speaking in the assembly. Another subject that will come up in the chapter, of course, a constant repetition of allied words, tongues and prophesying. There again, you're in this whole idea of speaking. Another word that you will notice coming up seven times in the chapter is the word edify or edification. That will be an important word. So that when you put all together, you see that the big concern of this chapter is telling the Corinthians how they should speak. 
to edification in the public meetings of the assembly. He said, you don't speak for your enjoyment. You don't just speak because you like to be heard, or you want to be heard. And you don't just speak because you happen to enjoy being on your feet, and because you enjoy basking in the limelight of publicity. No, no, he said, your enjoyment is not the main business when you're speaking. He said, it's the edification of others. So always keep in mind the other person. It's not a much that I like it. Does it help him? Will he be the better off when my contribution is finished? Will I knock him down or will I build him up spiritually? So that edification in speaking, public speaking in the assembly is the major subject in uh, the chapter. Now, I think we'll discover that shadowing in the background that in the assembly at Corinth, they were particularly keen on the gift of tongues. It was a bit sensational. If you heard someone go off in tongues, it was quite spectacular. You sort of sat back and you looked at it and you listened. You didn't understand a word of it, but it was quite a performance. And the Corinthians, they just loved it. They were like a little children with a rattly toy. They were newfangled and they made plenty of noise. And this business, people hadn't a clue what... No, no, says the Apostle Paul. He says, now listen. He said, that's doing no advantage to the other people. So he said, I would discourage the use of tongues. He said, you'd be much better to put the emphasis on prophecy, where instead of speaking in an unknown language, you would speak in language that everybody could understand. But you say, I love, I love, the, I love the excitement of the tongues. He said, it's not a matter of excitement. He said, it's edification. It's not your excitement, it's the man, the other man's edification. So he said, I want, I'm not forbidding it. No, he said, I'm not telling you never to speak in tongues. But he said, I am encouraging you, instead of emphasizing tongues, on the other hand, you should emphasize prophecy. So that's the main concern of this particular chapter. Now, what, are, what about the actual components of the chapter? I'll maybe divide it up into maybe five or six sections just to help us to make our way through. In the first five verses, uh, there's a preference that is to be followed. He said in verse 1, he said, follow after charity. But he said, uh, and desire spirit, but rather, rather. He said, this this is the preference. Look at verse 5. He said, I would that you all speak in tongues, but rather... Rather, that prophesy. For greater is he that prophesieth than he that speaketh in tongues. So the apostle is encouraging, just as I've said, a preference. And he's promoting, he's promoting prophecy. A preference to be followed. Then in verses 6 down to verse number 12, we have parallels to be considered. He said, you take, for example, musical instruments. He said, take a trumpet, take a harp, take a pipe. He said, any of these things, he said, if it's going to be useful to anybody, the notes will have to be distinct and clear. Well, he said, it's just like that. He said, in the assembly, if you're going to speak in riddles, and if you're going to speak in tongues, and you're going to speak in a language that no one understands, well, he said, you'll be doing something there that you would never do in any other sphere of life. When people are playing music, except two-year-olds that keep hitting the piano on the same note. Well, their brethren do that too. <laughs> just, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't go very well just sitting on the same note. To get a little bit of melody, you have to have different notes distinctly played, harmonizing, coordinating. And he said, that's what you want. He said, consider the parallels and it will help you to make your choice. It will help you to follow a preference to be followed, a parallel to be considered. Then in verse number 12, down to verse number 19, we have profit to be aimed at. He said, now, I want to speak with my understanding. Look at verse 14, understanding. Verse 15, understanding. Verse 16, how shall he that occupies the room of the unlearned 
said Amen, seeing he understandeth not. Verse 19. In the church I'd rather speak five words with my understanding. He said, I want to say something that engages my mind. And he said, well, also engage the mind of the other person. So his mind, he said, I just don't want something that carries me away on a wave of spiritual exhilaration and leave everybody else sitting. He said, I want my mind to think about what I'm saying and I want his mind to think about what I'm saying so that my understanding and his understanding, the understanding of the speaker, the understanding of the hearer will both be engaged. And he said it will be profitable. He says he'll go away having grasped something of spiritual benefit. That, of course, is a very, very important aspect of things as well. There's a profit to be aimed at. Then when you get to verse 20, down to verse number 25, we have a purpose to be remembered. He said, now I don't want you to forget the purpose that God had in mind in giving tongues. He said, tongues were actually given as a sign. And a sign particularly for the Jew, this people, this Jewish people, the nation of Israel. He said, God didn't give tongues for ministry in the assembly, primarily. And he said he didn't give tongues for evangelizing the lost, primarily. He said, you're using tongues hoping that will impress people. He says, actually, tongues were given as a sign of God's displeasure, as a sign of God's judgment. Now, he said, you'll have to be very careful. For he said, instead of impressing people with what is positive, he said, if you're all babbling on in tongues and someone comes in, he said, you think you're mad. You think you're mad. And he said, that's not the purpose that God had in mind. So we have to, we'll have to keep in mind what the purpose is as well. Then the last long section of the chapter, verse 26 to the end, we have the principles to be remembered. He said, now brethren, when you come together, verse 26, everyone is a psalm and everyone is a doctrine and a revelation and you're all ready to go. Well, he said, that's fine. But he said, there are certain principles to be observed. Don't be speaking together. Don't be clashing. He says, speak one at a time. And he said, there might reach a point where one steps back and he gives room to another. So he said, there's coordination. It's not chaos. It's not a free-for-all. There's no chairman. There's nobody stands up and says, you go next. You go next. You speak next. There's not any human organization in that sense, but he said there's divine order. And he said the spirit of the prophets is subject to the prophets. Now, that's a very sketchy outline. A preference to be followed. A parallel to be considered. A prophet to be aimed at. A purpose to be remembered. And certain principles that are to be employed. And we'll take a little time at each one of the sections. Now, I think, I think the only other couple of things, because it's a very long chapter, the only other couple of things I've mentioned is this. There's quite a challenge in this chapter. Quite a number of challenges. In fact, some book that I read somewhere, and it kind of frightened me, he said that he had written a book on the whole of Corinthians and he said that he found chapter 14 by far the most difficult of all the chapters but there you are there are challenges one of the basic challenges in the chapter is this what exactly are tongues and there'll be a difference of opinion I would say perhaps on the platform and perhaps in the audience some of my brethren think, well, they say, sure, there's no problem. The tongues in the book of the Acts were foreign languages. Acts chapter 2, it says, they heard every man in his own dialect. It was foreign languages in Acts 2. No problem there. That has to be admitted. Many brethren say, but when you come to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, it's an unknown tongue. It's some kind of ecstatic speech. It's not any cognitive, coherent foreign language it's just a, a kind of a, an ecstatic expression of 
a spirit, a spirit enthused, just full-hearted, some kind of ecstasy. Well, there you are. You'll have two different opinions. Personally, I'm not dogmatic. There are difficulties, and some of the verses will bring the difficulties to the fore. I personally cannot see any definite, conclusive reason that tells me that the tongues in 1 Corinthians 14 must be different to the tongues of Acts. In fact, I can see quite a number of reasons for the two tongues being the same type of tongue. So personally, I incline to the view, undogmatically, that the tongues of 1 Corinthians 12, 13 and 14 are foreign languages, known somewhere in the world, not known to the speaker. He was able to speak that foreign language that he hadn't learnt at school, that he hadn't studied, he was able to speak it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. That will be one of the challenges that we will have to think about. Another thing that I just want to mention, we can keep it in the back of our mind. There has been a, what I would call nearly a contempt for this chapter in the world at large. You take the world of Pentecostalism, And there are many sincere people in that movement. Take the charismatic movement. And take the gibberish that is sometimes called speaking in tongues. Much of that totally, in a cavalier way, dismisses the ruling of this chapter. Take denominationalism. They put their hymns on a board. They put a collar around a man's neck. He becomes the director of everything. Such a man is totally missing in this chapter. So that Pentecostalism has problems in this chapter. Denominationalism with one man ministry has serious problems in this chapter. Take feminism. Anything that a man does can also be done by females. If the gentleman preaches, the women must preach. According to this chapter, women are to be in subjection. And that subjection expresses itself in silence. They have a contribution to make. A valid, a vital contribution to make to assembly testimony. We learned that last year from chapter 11. But as far as public participation is concerned, it says in the chapter, let your women keep silence in the churches. Even some evangelicals, some men whose ratings I respect, They say that these couple of verses putting women to silence are an interpolation. (laughs) I saw one gentleman, he said that he felt felt that uh, it was a note in the margin of the manuscripts that had by default been included and it became part of the text, but it wasn't originally part of the text. This is a very highly respected, supposedly Bible-believing evangelical scholar. The one wee problem for his theory is such a manuscript has never been found. There's never been a manuscript found with a wee note of this in the margin. It's always in the text. And the only place I submit that that manuscript exists is in the imagination of a man that doesn't want to submit to the truth of Holy Scripture. Dear brethren, in Assembly Fellowship, we are in a serious minority. This subject of the silence of women, they are ordaining bishops and women presbyters and women priests. The whole of Christendom has just jettisoned this truth as if it wasn't in the Bible. As if 1 Corinthians 14, 1 Timothy 2 had never been written. We are on the back foot as far as public popular opinion is concerned. I hope the Lord will give us grace to simply submit to the teaching of Holy Scripture. There's contempt for this passage. Now, Just a couple of other things. You would say, well, if prophecy doesn't exist, as it was, we talked about prophecy last year, if speaking in tongues and that special gift, if it was a sign for the Jews and it doesn't any longer exist, you say, what's the point now of reading a chapter like this in a Bible reading in 2013? If we're talking mainly about two gifts that are no longer operative in the full sense, Is it not irrelevant to be dealing with this? Does this chapter have any contribution to make to our assembly life? Now, just let me say this, dear believers. 1 Corinthians chapter 14 is vital for assembly life. There is no other chapter of the New Testament 
from Matthew 1 to Revelation 22, there is no other chapter that gives us the principles of taking part in meeting, apart from 1 Corinthians 14. This is the chapter that gives us the guidelines on how to take part profitably and how to take part publicly. Now, as far as the consideration of the chapter is concerned, you can see time is marching away on us already. It's a very, very long chapter. Usually in Bible readings like this, the brethren like to go down verse by verse. And that's the way it should be done and is mostly done. Unfortunately, we'll not be able to do that today. We're going to have to work more paragraph by paragraph those paragraphs that I mentioned. Now, we can do two things. And I have been told, you get some instructions before you come here. Some of them more easily to cope with than others. I was told that I had to give a little outline of 1 Corinthians 13 as well. So I've done that and I hope that lets me off the hook. Another thing that I was told was this. In the chapter, we can have problems. What are tongues? What is prophecy? What does this verse mean? What does that verse mean? What does that clause mean? Problems, problems, problems. Nitty gritty problems. In the chapter, we have principles. Now we have to decide, and the brethren told me they had already decided, what they want in the chapter is not to spend the whole Bible. We're not run away from problems. That's not, we don't do that. We'll face them as they come. We'll not be able to deal with them all. The emphasis of the Bible reading will not be on the problems. The emphasis will be on the principles of public participation. Now, just before I sit down, let me mention, how should I take part in the meeting? What should be the guiding considerations? Well, I said the first paragraph. Just give me two minutes on this. The first paragraph, verses 1 to 5. And you'll notice if you just put your eye to those verses. Verse number 3, edification. Verse number 4, edifieth himself. He that prophesieth edifieth the church. The end of verse number 5, that the church may receive edifying. Now, if I'm going to take part in the assembly, I should do it constructively. Is this going to add? Is it going to edify? I should do it constructively. Secondly, the next section, verses 6 down to verse number 12, he speaks about the harp and the pipe and the trumpet. They can't give an uncertain sound. No one will know what to do. And there are many voices. They have to be clear. He says, secondly, you not only speak constructively, but you speak clearly. You don't get up in the assembly and everybody whispering around, If you're giving notice, 243. Speak clearly. And always remember that the deafest people will be in the back of the hall. <laughs> but we speak constructively and we speak clearly. Then the next section, verse number 12 down to verse number 19. We understand it, understand it, understand it. We speak comprehensively. So that people can comprehend it. They're not left wondering, what was he talking about? I couldn't. I, did he know himself? And they say, I don't think he knew. And I know he said, the man that's speaking has to have understanding. And the people that are listening can take it in with understanding. We speak not only constructively, we speak clearly, we speak comprehensibly. In the next section, verses 20 down to verse number 25, he talks about visitors coming in. And he said, they listen to you. And he says, they're convinced. And they're humbled. And they're touched. And they say that God is in you of a truth. He said, speak convincingly. He said, in your public participation, have such a sense of God in what you say, that people that listen and look on will be convinced. There's something here. Something here. Then the last section of the chapter Verses 26 to 40. Well, he said, speak consecutively. He says, one at a time. Don't have two on their feet at the one time. He said, let one finish, then another. Sir. Speak consecutively. And he said, another thing, speak consistently. He said, others will judge. And what you say needs to be consistent with divine revelation. And he said, speak considerately. He said, sometimes another man will want to say something. 
and I'll have to consider the Bible reading and stop here. He said, speak, leave space for another. Constructively. Clearly. Comprehensively. Convincingly. Consecutively. Considerately. Consistently. I am really concerned, dear brethren. We need a good wee bit of help on public participation. We're all nervous. We all make mistakes. But we ought to speak in such a way that the company is edified. Everybody is blessed. People go away with something for their souls. If some visitor comes in, they don't sit and think, those people are not right in the head. They mightn't like our teaching. But they should be convinced that we are in touch with God. That we know what we are doing. That we are not sitting with barren silences. Nobody knows what's happening next. It should be a con- and closing verse of the chapter sums it all up. Let all things be done decently and in order. So our brethren will help us through and keep in mind those things that I have been told and uh, I trust the Lord will guide us through the passage. Now it will be a thing that will follow us down the chapter inch by inch, verse by verse nearly. So if I can ask our brethren just before we start into this first section if I can ask our dear brethren beside me on the floor, wherever, what about the whole subject of tongues, speaking in tongues? What exactly is involved in that, I mean, in New Testament sense? Is it an ecstatic gibberish? Or is it a foreign language? Are the tongues of Corinthians the same as the tongues of Acts? Or help us generally on that, dear brethren, and then we can get right into the passage. I would tend to throw my weight in with what you have said, that it is not gibberish, but rather it is known languages. I ask the question, is there any sign value in gibberish? I would say, no, anybody could speak gibberish. There's no sign value in that. But some people say, well, it does say in chapter 13, verse 1, though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, wouldn't that indicate it's more than just a human language? Now, friends, he doesn't say that he spoke with the tongues of angels. He said, even though I did speak with the tongues of angels and had not love, it would be sounding brass and a tinkling cymbal. Did he give his body to be burned? No, he'd never given his body to be burned. And yet he says, though I give my body to be burned. So I don't think that he spoke with the tongues of angels. I would take it that what he's speaking about here would be known languages and hence the sign value of them. I, and, and just in connection with what our brother said, which is very helpful, is that down the chapter you'll notice time and time again, we unknown tongue, unknown tongue, unknown tongue. Now every time you read that expression, the word unknown will be in italic. Just maybe a little pity, because that puts, a, puts our minds to, it's a language that's not known on earth, it's unknown. It's just tongue, speaking in a tongue, and we can forget about this idea of unknown tongue. I think it's a most unfortunate interpolation that's been there. I think it has misled many. I'm perfectly happy with what you said, that Acts 2 uh, was something that was a voice to people. They understood what they were hearing. They were known tongues. And I see no reason to see it's different in 1 Corinthians 14. And if if, we can't spend on Julie long, I'm very happy that our brethren... Take that view. If we do, and there's a great weight of evidence for it, dear believers, if we take that Acts Corinthians the same, that automatically, this is not why we take the view, but it's one of the results of the view, that automatically eliminates a great amount of the charismatic gibberish that's so popular in the broad world around us. It would also mean that this is not a learned experience. that people don't work up a little by little helped by others to speak in this unknown tongue because you you, you, sorry Mr. you have if you read about some of these charismatic these gibberish you have people spend hours sometimes in front of a mirror and even boys do that when they're going to preach the television (laughs) have a bit of sense but they spend hours doing these contortions and getting themselves into all sorts of shapes in their mouth and all to try and get this ecstasy and this gibberish so that they can express it most effectively and make a biggest impression and the biggest show the very opposite to what's first Corinthians 14 Mr. Nesbitt Brother Gillian 
I've looked at this now for many years and from many aspects and have long since come to the conclusion that it's languages, a person speaking in a language that some present did not understand. Mm -hmm. If you want the word unknown, a real language, but a language that wasn't understood by all in the company. I'm glad of the strength that has been given to that view in this reading. I appreciate that. There are brethren that I have known that have taken another view over the years. We respect them. And, uh, right, Johnny, just for moving on. Talks against the teaching of tongues now. Why is it that the Pentecostal churches still have a, a big support in it, and why do, do they insist that it's uh, taught in their churches if the Book of Corinthians is against it, and uh, can they never get away from the truth? The, 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 part of the reason our brothers answered our brother's question is many of those groups emphasize experience hmm. experience at the expense of exposition now they have the experience and then they make the Bible fit the experience it should be the other way around it should be the word of God first and there's an emotional appeal an emotional appeal to certain you'll discover that certain parts of the world for example South Korea they have 800,000 in that big charismatic church, just massive. It appeals to certain type of people, certain emotionalism and so on. Uh, Donald, Brother Donald. Just, just to reinforce your point, does verse 18 not indicate that Paul spoke in tongues or he was a linguist himself? <laughs> Surely, very good. Very, so this first, sorry. No, I was going to say, a brother's asking, why do people go in for it today? I think maybe there's one answer in our passage in the little section a man who's engaging in that he's edifying himself he gets a a buzz you know it's an ego trip as far as he's concerned but the emphasis in this passage is in this first little section is what we're doing in assembly life ought to be for the edification of the church rather than just self-edification that's exactly that that brings us as our our brother Robin come ahead brings us to this first section there's a preference now, why? Why do we prefer, why do you want to promote prophesying Paul instead of these languages? Well, he says simply this. The audience. He says, a man that's in a tongue can speak to God. God knows what he's saying, all right. But he says, a man that's prophesying speaks to others. There's a different audience. And he said, secondly, there's a different advantage. He said, the man that's speaking in tongues has a spiritual experience and he gets some spiritual edification himself. But he said, the man is speaking out for the benefit of others. So it's a different audience. It's a distinct advantage. So he said, put your emphasis there that you might excel. And that the church, verse number 5, that the church may receive edifying. Not personal advantage, but collective. Collective edification. But bro, isn't Paul teaching that this gift can be controlled those who speak tongues, they say they couldn't help themselves. So it's just against, plus the fact that the women are forbidden to speak, and yet women can get up so supposedly to uh, speak in tongues. And, uh, so it, it can be controlled, but they don't control it. Exactly, Brother Tommy. Thanks for that. Now, if you notice just, if we drop chapter, th- sorry, Rob, Brother, Rob, come on ahead. Just a quick point, David. And it underscores a lot of what you're saying. <clears throat> the last reference in the Acts to tongues is in chapter 19 at Ephesus. Right. In the next chapter, Paul called the Ephesian elders, but he never mentioned tongues. Right. He wrote a letter to the church at Ephesus and he never mentioned tongues. And in fact, in all the New Testament epistles, there's no reference to tongues except this one. Now, am I right in thinking it may not have been mentioned at all if it hadn't been for the abuse of tongues at Corinth? <laughs> very, very good. You know... I would say the assembly at Corinth was the most disorderly assembly that we know of in the New Testament. And it's a kind of a perverse appreciation. It's a mercy in a sense that they were disorderly. Because we have from the apostle, from the pen of the apostle, apostolic direction because of their disorders. Had it not been for the disorders, we mightn't have had some of these details. Now, sorry, Mr. McBride. First Corinthians 14, or the intact, First Corinthians all is particularly in relation to churches of God. Mm-hmm. 
and more of that than the body of Christ. And again, thinking of the time when it was written, it is still in the transition period. And while much of the ministry given is valid until the present time, we have also things in it that were in the transitional period and may not be valid today. Very good, very good. And once we get down to the purpose of tongues, verses 20 to 25, we'll deal more with that. But you see, I want you to just see a thing here. If we had dropped out chapter 13, look at the last verse of chapter 12. The last verse of chapter 12 says, Covet the best gifts. Mm -hmm. Then it says, I show you a more excellent way. That's the way of love. So, in verse 31 of chapter 12, you have gifts and then love. Now you come to verse 1 of chapter 14. The order is reversed. You have love and then gifts. Now he says, pursue charity. There's a pursuit. And he said, desire spiritual gifts. There's a passion. But he says there's a preference. Rather that ye may prophesy. And if I make love my priority, my first question will be when I'm going to exercise my gift, will this help the other man? Mm -hmm. Will I love him? I'll not be indulging or in any way catering to my own ego. I'm not wanting his advantage. So he says, put love first. Then he said, the exercise of gift will slot into its place more properly. What are we to understand by prophecy? Was it giving short messages directly from God prior to the completion of the canon of Scripture? I, I, think, I think that... The, the bring, I'm glad Mr. Nesbitt brought that up, but I wanted to talk about tongues and we should say something about prophecy. I think in the full sense of the gift... Uh, Prophecy with a capital P, if we call it that, is exactly what our brother has just said. In the absence of a complete canon, complete full divine revelation, prophets could give a word for the occasion that was divinely revealed and was infallible. Now that's prophecy with a capital P. And I'm inclined to think that there's another sense in which there's maybe a kind of prophetic ministry even to our present day that we can learn the principles. That is, a man, you know, I take a, a man gives teaching and he gets up and he reads six verses and he goes down the verses and teaches context and that's great. That's teaching. Very, very essential. Very good. But then there's another man who doesn't go down a passage and teach but he gets up with a message from God for an occasion and everybody feels it. Now, it's not a new revelation, as the prophecy was in Bible times, but in another sense, it's like a prophetic message, a pungent message for an occasion. So there's a kind of prophetic ministry that I take it goes on to this present day, and yet there's teaching, which is exposition of a set passage in an altogether different... Do you not category. prefer to call that the exhortation rather than prophecy? Uh, I know in the strictest sense prophecy is something that was directly revealed and uh, I understand where you're coming from that a man is before God and he has a message yeah. from God I would be kind of reluctant to put the label prophecy on it though Aye, well, I, I was given it the word prophetic in that general sense but no I take, I take your point Brother Gilliland <clears throat> I don't want to take much time and one becoming in as often further down the chapter but I'm convinced that those who speak of the gift of prophecy in the denominations, particularly Pentecostal, Elamite, don't understand what prophecy is. Now, in South Armagh, there was a farmer. No one would have doubted his true Christianity, a godly man, a very sincere man, and he was connected with the Pentecostal aspect of things. And in conversation one day, he told me that he had the gift of prophecy. Mm -hmm. And I said, when do you use that? Oh, he says, in the church gathering. And I said, did you have any prophecy recently? Yes, he said, I had a prophecy last Sunday morning. And I said, would you tell me what that prophecy was? Oh, he said, it's, it's something that can only be given in the church. I shouldn't be giving it to an individual. 
But I said, you know me, and you respect me, and I'll not be carrying it around the country. But for my own benefit and instruction, I would like you to tell me what your prophecy was. Oh, he said, it came to me, he says, during the course of the meeting, and I sounded it out. And therefore be ye steadfast, etc., etc., at the end of 1 Corinthians 15, always abounding in the work of the Lord. I said, that's not prophecy. That's 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58. Now, I'm convinced that they who talk about prophecy really don't understand what they're talking about. So a prophecy in the sense of an Old Testament prophet or the church built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, that has ceased with the apostolic era. We're agreed on that. But now, just before we leave this section, I want to catch the three words of verse number three. You notice the buts here. Desire spirit, but rather. He that speaketh in an unknown to speaketh unto God, but he that prophesieth speaketh unto men. Verse number five. I would that you speak with tongues, but rather that ye prophesy. Now, the purpose of prophecy, and we are giving... We are saying ministry, public participation. Verse 3. We should always speak to edification, exhortation, and comfort. That was the purpose of prophetic ministry. And it's the purpose of ministry, I think, to this present day. Would our brother like to say anything on the difference between those uh, three particular nouns? I think undoubtedly, and the chapter I think confirms it, that had to exercise either of tongues with interpretation or prophecy been used for edification, it would have provided guidance for the people of God in the absence of a written, the written New Testament as we have it. And clearly where the, the Corinthians were failing their fellow believers was that these safeguards that are set out in the rest of the chapter were not being followed. Exactly. Verse 5... I, I, was, I was looking at a word on verse verse 3 on those edification, exhortation and comfort just if any brothers David, uh, could, could I come in there on that verse you're just, talking about surely, uh, just looking edification that's building up right. exhortation that's stirring up and then comfort that's binding up right. and I want to say one thing in regard to tongues I agree with every statement that has been made here I believe it is actual languages. In Acts chapter 2, and I'm not going back, David, I'm going to be brief. Acts chapter 2, known language. A cosmopolitan situation. When I come to the epistle of the Corinthians, Corinth was a cosmopolitan city. And I believe it was actual tongues. They didn't have to learn the language. They, as it were, they had the gift that they could speak in a tongue that they hadn't learned. Now, if you ask any missionary here today, you can't do that today. Well, very good, Brother Gordon. I, I would say, generally speaking, and without going into watertight, edification would touch a man's mind, build up his mind and his understanding. Exhortation would touch a man's will, stir him up to do something, motivate him, touch his will. Comfort would touch his emotion, so that uh, the point that I'm making is this. Ministry should deal with the whole person. Not just, we're not just there to feed Christians' mind. We're there to touch their will and to touch their hearts. Ministry has a comprehensive... Uh, I think that, sorry, Brother Keith, go ahead. In relation to our brother's comment that Corinth was a cosmopolitan city, surely that would have done away with the interpretation of tongues. I, 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 I know what you're reading, Keith. I, I was thinking when our brother Gordon was saying that, what I wanted to point out later on, as well as being a cosmopolitan city, Corinth was a city that had a very big Jewish population, which I think is the relevance, the relevance of tongues in that, in that context. Now, I don't want to be thrown out, but I do tend towards the other view. I'm not a Pentecostal either. <laughs> but what I'd be interested to know is this. Why is it that in 1 Corinthians 14 there is great emphasis placed upon interpretation? In all of the other passages, there's no mention of interpretation. In fact, in chapter 19 of the Acts, 
it says that they spake in tongues and prophesied. In, in chapter 10 it says, and they magnified God. So it was discernible. You see, I appreciate all. I'm glad you brought that in, Keith. And we'll, we'll pardon you. <laughs> right. we'll pardon. You and I were good friends. And I think it's to do with the cosmopolitan yeah. character. But is it not so that if, it was, if there was no interpretation, only those who spoke and understood that particular language would benefit? But the, the emphasis of the passage is that whatever the contribution is, it's to be for the benefit of all. That's, that's the big thing, dear brother. It's to be for the, and we don't want to miss that point. You know, all our participation should be for the benefit of others. It's not a man getting up for his own ostentation or his own show. It's to, you know, there are brethren and sisters that need a word at every meeting. And when we're, whether we're praying or speaking a word, it should be for the advantage of a, that the church may receive edifying. Did you want to say anything on verse yeah, 5, Brother Jack? And then we'll yeah, I, I was going to ask you just to give advice to young people. Now, let, let's imagine this scenario. Here's a young brother or a young sister in Assembly Fellowship, and they go to college for the first time. And the first time, for the first time, they're brought in contact with professing believers who say that they speak in tongues, and they turn our young friends to a verse like this, I would that ye all speak with tongues. And then they go down the chapter and they say, I thank God I speak in tongues more than you all. And they point out to them further down the chapter, it says, forbid not to speak in tongues. Now, how are our young friends going to answer these people? I, well, uh, as you say, as you say if, if, you take out, if you take out those isolated statements, it seems to make a case. But if you take it in the whole context, he says, don't be speaking in tongues unless you interpret. Mm-hmm. So that if you take the whole picture, the apostle shows that uh, tongues need interpretation. And if you're going to do interpretation with tongues, you might as well do prophecy at the start. Because it's going to take up twice the time. Mm-hmm. going to speak yeah. in the tongue, then he's going to interpret it. Why not just go straight from the word go? And I think too, you know, this is okay when tongues were in vogue. Yeah. You know, forbidden not to speak in tongues. That's okay when the gift of tongues is still current. But you've been teaching us from First Corinthians 13, whether there be tongues, they shall cease. So there comes the point when tongues are no longer relevant. And so, in a sense, what he's saying here is totally irrelevant to us. Forbid not to speak in tongues. Exactly. Good brother, Jack. Uh, Say, David, wasn't it interesting that what happened at Babel, where there was confusion, when you come to Acts chapter 2, there was that wonderful overruling hand of God in the speaking and the language that they all understood. Oh, very good. The whole other, the confusion of tongues reversed. Now we'll go to the second section, if we may, brother. I'll give a little outline from verses 6 to 12. We not only speak constructively, we've had that edify, edify, edify. Now in this section, we have to speak clearly. Now the apostle speaks about three things. He says, if I come, brother, you say, but it's great to get a visit from Paul. But he says, if I came, and he says, my personal visit, I was speaking in tongues, he says, I wouldn't profit you. He says, I need to come speaking by revelation or doctrine. Then secondly, he said, what about musical instruments? Not just my own ministry, but what about musical instruments? Take the pipe and the harp, the wind, and the stringed instruments. He says, it has to give a distinct sound, verse 7. A distinction. Then verse number 8. He says a trumpet has to give a definite sound. So likewise ye accept the other words easy to be understood. He said you have to be articulate. Speak in such a way that people can hear what you're saying. Distinct and definite sounds. He says that's my ministry and that's music. Then he looks at the multitude of voices. Verse number 10 11. He said there are many different voices in the world significance but he says if I don't know the meaning of it he says it just puts a barrier between me and the person that's speaking I'm a barbarian to him he's a barbarian to me he says no good relationships so he said it must be constructive and it must be clear and it must connect so you sound like a barbarian must connect you know that's a thing dear brethren I see I, I I don't know how some of my beloved brethren and I suppose I'm the worst offender. There are some brethren, and I see them standing preaching, and the audience is not a person, 
everybody before them living somewhere in their subconscious state, like they're sitting sleeping. And their brethren could preach a sermon as if it was a concrete pillar in front of them. It would make no difference. That's no good. You must connect. You must connect. I don't know. They talk about raising your voice or raising your arms or something. I do anything to connect with people. I've seen people, men, preach beautiful sermons and the audience just drifted about 3,000 miles out into the middle of the Atlantic somewhere. <laughs> and they went through the performance. No, he says, let the people know what you're saying. Easy to be understood. must be clear. And he said, if you're talking and they don't know what you're talking about, he says, they'll just put out no good relationships. You'll be a barbarian. And he says, there'll be no readiness. When the trumpet sounds, a man will have to get ready. He said, you need to cultivate good relationships. Connect with your audience. And he says, you need to give a clear sound so that if they're sounding the bugle of warning, everybody jumps to attention and they get ready. So that's the point in this particular section.